Yesterday, we talked through the 2012 nationwide lockout of meat workers. The Meat Workers Union had got help from the Council of Trade Unions, and we heard how Simon worked with people like Peter to try and shift the narrative toward what was really happening. Iwi tried to broker a peace, and Māori farmers were encouraged to boycott supplying tallies. After lengthy negotiations, a stalemate was finally reached, and workers had their collective union contracts rolled over. Today, we wrap up the incredible story of the Wairua meat workers and the dispute between tallies one of New Zealand's richest families and its own workforce. Ross Webb, an historian of the Meat Workers Union, explains how the 2015 lockout started. What happens after that, I think, is that there's a broader political story, which is that it was clear to the tallies that they were expecting kind of a legislative uh, change from the national government under John Key and Bill English, which would remove the duty to conclude collective bargaining. So. By 2015, then, the legislation passes and the tallies are are quick to use it. And that basically allows companies to walk away from collective bargaining or either party to walk away from collective bargaining. This is a company that is ideologically opposed to unions and has destroyed unions from their seafood part of their business many, many years ago. So they obviously thought they could just do the same thing in, in the meatworks. And so in 2015, following the expiry of the collective agreement, the company once again starts to offer these IEAs, the Individual Employment Agreements. Oh, 2015, it was better. It was better. They just said, nah. <laughs> they just said, no, you can't come on without an individual agreement. We saw it on you, um, and they were, they were told, um, you sign it, or you, that's you, you get out. There's no collective here. You either sign this or, or nothing. The union was losing members fast. That kind of strategy of deunionization seemed to be working. And, and the union itself was kind of in a bind. It, it didn't know whether the union could uh, withstand another national lockout. The decision to give a knighthood to one of our leading businessmen is angering the union movement. The millionaire owner of Tally's Foods has been recognised for services to business and philanthropy. He's a little-known face behind one of our biggest food companies. Tally's sells and exports seafood, frozen veg, meat and dairy. But the decision to make Peter Tally Sir Peter has upset some of his workers. In my view, you know, this is not a man that we should be calling Sir in this country. Sir Peter's been locked in many a standoff with the unions. His company ordered to pay hundreds of thousands for unsafe work practices, one case resulting in the death of a worker. Last year alone, ACC paid out almost $2 million to almost 1,300 injured Tally's workers. That was the voice of the late Helen Kelly, leader of the CTU at the time, the Council of Trade Unions. Part of the reason why there wasn't a strong, clear national response to this third wave of Tally's deunionising efforts is because of the regional character of the meatworks, as Sheds had a strong individual identity. And as Helen Kelly had said, they didn't understand well enough its own membership, and so couldn't coordinate between each shed the way they'd need to do to have a united and coordinated response. And in many other sheds, they had less than the majority of unionised workers so it was much harder for them to pull enough people on strike to build that leverage over tallies and force them to close down their plants. From a political philosophical view, it seems easy to say that everyone should hold the line, but actually you're talking about impoverished communities, but also a culture where work is really integral to who you are 
but we're talking about years and years of no no action. So the culture of unionism is not there. You know what I mean? Like it, mm. it takes time. So basically the union's advice to workers was that workers should sign the IEAs and go back to work, maintain a kind of union presence among themselves, fight from within, but at least they'd be working. At least they'd be getting an income and working. The union would be fighting a, a legal campaign to overturn um, the IEAs. But I think the wider workers really saw the impact on the town. They saw the fact that people were leaving. The culture of the work had changed. And so for many of the people I interviewed, there was a real sense of responsibility of taking on this issue. And, and people described the kind of like this idea of this sense of responsibility to both the past and future of meat worker unionism. You know, people spoke about the fact that their grandfathers didn't give up, you know, who were union members in the wider works. And also the fact that, you know, their children might work in the freezing works one day and, and they didn't want to kind of, you know, concede on these conditions and, and give up, really. And at that point, that's the point at which Wairua workers refused to sign the IEAs, uh, rejecting the advice of the National Union and are locked out. We knew that it was coming down to us. We knew that they were going to see this. We have 75% union. Got to remember some of those other plants are maybe 30%, um, 40% union. We were 75%. This one we could stop the slaughter and process over here. And us being 75%, I said, yeah, I think we're going to make a stand. I know I had to ask my wife first. You know, my wife was my, my stone. She goes, I went, mum, you know, I think we're going to make a stand. Mum, she goes, do it, do it, dad. She's always my advisor. I wouldn't do anything without her hearsay, you know. So she goes, yep, do it. We had our own meetings. We come up with that decision our, our, on our own. But we recognised that our, our top end wasn't doing what we were asking them to do. This is how we felt. They weren't coming to the party for us. So it was Mike Nahu telling us to sign, sign, sign. And we saw the other sheds coming down towards us and they were signed. So we're going to say no. And we told them we are going to say no. We, we knew who we were. We consider ourselves one of the hardest unionists in the country. That's how Wydal sees itself. And I've got to say that right. <laughs> it's my perception of my people. Because they are hard and they'll stand by the, 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 what they say. There was also, the workers at Wydal were aware of that political context of the National Party's Employment Relations Act being passed and there was a sense that if if they didn't fight it anybody else was in the firing line. They were part of a bigger thing you know because we didn't do it for us too. The other one was we had to put it out there for the doctors, our nurses, our bus drivers. So there was a, there was an idea that this was a campaign not just for for those local workers but had it had national significance to those workers at Wairoa. They're sure we were taking them to court, to court for good faith bargaining, but while that was happening, he was making them all sign this letter saying, you're an individual, you're an individual, you're an individual, and everybody's an individual. They can just say, no, we don't have any union. They don't have to do collective bargaining, and it's over. This time, you know, for, a third, for the third time in a row, it's a five-month lockout. You know, hard to believe, really. By refusing to sign the IEAs, the workers hoped to pressure tallies to roll over the collective and back down from another fight. 
because if the union members who weren't locked out threatened to strike in solidarity with those that were, the company would have to run the factory at tiny capacity and at a massive loss. We were going to strike and then they had a meeting with the Iwi and he said, we'll give you everything you want as long as you don't strike. Okay, this is what the company said. In 2015? In 2015. And so we, they called off the strike and the company still went in and locked everybody up. <gasps> yeah. Fuck. Yeah. That's outrageous. Yeah, but it happened. It happened. So Andrew Talley's actually met with the boys and he told them, if you don't strike, then we'll just roll over the collective and we'll just carry on. i, I got to give it to the brothers because they went on... Good faith, basically. You know, they said, yep, I'm, I'm down for that. And then, bang, nah, still got locked out. We'll take the stand. We'll see what they made. They said, sign us or bugger off. So we bugger off. <laughs> Peter and 196 of his colleagues, for the third time in five years, went out on strike. We knew we could potentially get fired. We knew that. We didn't go into a blind. Because they'd done it to us so often... It was easy for us to say, well, now nah, bugger you again. You know, um, we knew what we were in for, but, but hey, it's, um, for us, the strategy was in our hands. We took the strategy off Mike and them. This is how I feel about it. We took the strategy off them and said, no, we're going to do it this way. Um, if the court cases don't result in our favour... This is a clip from one of the Wairoa Union meetings that John Campbell recorded during a short podcast he did in the 2015 lockout. Um, and the iwi are unable to pull the strings. What are we going to do? That was a question from the floor. Now the woman who's about to answer it is Darren Fenton of the Meat Workers Union. You have a plan B, but I don't necessarily agree with your plan B. Look, all I can say about that, let, let's, you know, let's hope that it doesn't happen. But in my, as you know, I've been around a wee bit, and I've been around in the union movement, and I've felt, been in some really awful shit fights in my time. And I've seen workers dealt to in the way you're being dealt to, and lose in the courts, and rebuild. And so it will be a decision about whether you guys want to hang in there and try and rebuild and get stronger and take this company on. Yeah, but um, first, first we need a bit of a show of hands from everyone to see if they agree to the union going back to the other sheds for them to go on strike. If we agree with that co-proper. Could I have a show of hands of our members if we want all those fathers to come out? But she's going to take it back to those other sheets. It's not a given yet, you know. But we've given them the go. It was unanimous that vote. There wasn't a hand in the room that didn't go up. And this is how we do it in Warwick. We're open and transparent about what we do. So when we had a big meeting and all the sheets were there, and we told we told our union right then, we're not going to go back. And and then John uh, said, "So what are you going to do for us?" And one of them said, we're not going to do anything. We're not going to help you at all. You've got to do what we tell you to do. And then John John goes, hang on, I've been in the media industry for 36 years and I've paid my three fees for 36 years. And then you've got to tell me you're not going to help me. Mm-hmm. And then it was, they were like, oh, oh, and they started backpedaling real quick. Hey, you know, because we're the ones who are going to make this thing. And if you're not going to do it, we're going we're gonna to bloody do it. And we're sticking to our guns. And this was going to happen. 
they backpedaled and they did and they did come to the party eventually. And you can carry on having your um court cases and everything, but we're not gonna sit here and wait for this legal thing. Uh, we're gonna start start strategizing. Because we did what we did, forced them to put our court case in as urgent. So speed the, the process up. Because you guys held out. Because we held out. A lot of the strategy was based on community organizing, getting enough food, getting enough money to like get through a lockout or a strike. The campaign would focus on the idea that it would destroy communities, basically, if the freezing was closed, which it did. And I suppose that became center of the campaign is really, it was kind of ripping out the heart of, of a community, basically. We get $175, this is a single person, per person. Our rent here, my example is 180 There's nothing left for any bills, for any food. That's when this comes in handy. We've had people coming in with eviction notices. They're struggling hard with their power. We try and help them so their power doesn't get cut off. There's a lot of struggle here and it's getting worse and worse every week. Our son, he was nominated for a Spirit of Adventure trip and he didn't tell us about it because he didn't want to be a burden because mum's not working at the moment so he heard it from us. It's hard because you know I'm used to helping to provide for my family and you know it's just like a big kick in the guts to be honest. 21 years of service to be locked out twice and you know all of our people are that skilled why would you lock your skilled workers out you should never be starved into signing a contract i mean you if you're starved into signing it and you go back you're already starting on the wrong foot the presents and everything here christmas will be hard if it's about your family, yeah. I don't think it would be. We'll find something to happen, even if we have that one big Christmas out there on the grass. But we're going to do something for our kids. Those were the voices of Tina Edwards, Daphne Farahinger and Lancy Crawford, all meat workers at the plant in Wairua. It was Wairua versus Dallas. Without, without, a, without a lot, that's what it was. And it was a better one. It was a better one. It wasn't all the plants versus Dallas. It was one little town. One little town, in that little town, and it did gather more momentum in it because it was just us. Mm. It was a David versus Goliath, yeah. and, that's what it, and it was a show, and it was a beautiful one. As those workers are still locked out, the, the battle in the court is progressing, um, and it's led by Peter Cranny. Uh, and I think, the, you know, the company, again, because it sees this kind of anti-union effort as a business expense, it appeals every decision that the court makes which just delays the decisions and also creates greater hardship for those workers locked out. So every time it appeals, it's just dragging the campaign out. They were limping, or they were dragging. We, like, they caused themselves financial hurt, you know? This was their brainchild. Got to be there's somebody sitting there going, how can we screw them up? How can we do it? How can we do it? So they came up with this one. So we came up with this one. <laughs> In late 2015, the Meat Workers Union won one of its many court cases against tallies and the workers negotiated a return to work. But the 197 workers like Peter, who had refused the IEAs, were put onto the night shift as punishment. They said, no, no, you're all on the night shift. But we're senior members. We were all on the day shift. 
They're like, oh, bugger, you put you on the night shift. We're like, no, we're not having that. And plus, you're not recognising our seniority. So um, went to court again. <laughs> went to court again. It's like, yeah, we won it. And then they, they, they do another court case and they have to, ah. Then it's like, yeah, we did, we won that one. And then, you know, it was actually missing what everybody's minds. Because <laughs> they keep appealing. Because they kept on appealing it. I would always celebrate because you got to celebrate the wins. I think there was a pre-resounding no. The company proposed that the workers could go back to work on their old terms and conditions, so that's the old union contract, and they would all be put on a special night shift. All we wanted to go back to work under the condition that we had. It seems very discriminatory to put a whole bunch of union members on the night shift, and it almost feels to them like it's punishment. It's a slave system that they have set up in there. They don't have a say. I have them coming over home and saying they get us to do whatever they want to do whenever they want them to do it. I find that's wrong. That's illegal. That's that's abuse. This family has killed our town. I go right back to 2012 and you go out there now and see the amount of shops that have closed. Our community has suffered at the hands of these people. That was the voice of Hilton Rohe, another worker at Wairoa. There aren't many public appearances by senior Tally's executives about this whole dispute. As Ross said, they're generally extremely secretive. But this is a clip from Checkpoint about a disagreement over Waitangi Day in the Rangiuru plant, and it was one of the few times where a journalist was able to question them directly. And indeed, the Meat Workers Union and Wairoa workers took AFCO to the Employment Court last year and won. AFCO's general manager, new general manager, I think Andy Leonard, is with us now. Andy, welcome to the programme. How long have you been the boss at AFCO for? Uh, not too long, John. Only a matter of weeks. OK, so are you going to be a new broom? In other words, will you be able to get on with the Meat Workers Union and those who belong to it? I'll be more than happy to get on with the uh, Meat Workers Union, but... Um the, the subject of the day, of course, is the Waitangi Day. Why is the relationship so dysfunctional, so unpleasant, so adversarial between the Meat Workers Union staff who work for AFCO and AFCO, the employer? Uh, I don't really want to comment on that. Why, issue, why, why not? Because if we look, let's go through, Andy, and I, I think this is a case where we can compare apples with apples. Alliance have a Meat Workers Union collective contract. In fact, I think they're negotiating it at present. ANSCO, at the moment, are negotiating a collective drug and alcohol policy. Silver Fern have collective agreements. So AFCO stands alone amongst the major employers in not wanting collectives and having an entirely difficult, problematic and dysfunctional relationship with the Meat Workers Union members? Well, all I'll say is that we, we uh, do have a collective, we have had a collective, and we're not against uh, collective agreements. So um, it is our intention to uh, negotiate a collective with, with the union. OK, if we look at the Employment Court, the unanimous judgment of a full court of three judges, the court has found that AFCO's actions amounted to an unlawful lockout of its employees. Where are you at with your Wairoa workforce? Um, well, we're trying to get the Wairoa workforce back to work, um, and uh, and they are not coming back to work. Is the uh, is the short story there, John? But uh, as I say, um, not uh, it's, it's not my specialty at the moment, and we're not uh, here to talk about that. Andy Leonard, thank you. The new CEO of AFCO. Māori TV covered the story uh, regularly. Māori TV were awesome. They were absolutely awesome. 
they had John Campbell um, interviewing workers on the bridge. I'm standing on a bridge in Wairoa, the bridge in Wairoa, a little over halfway between Napier and Gisborne. It's sunny here and clear and blue, hopeful weather. But just beyond me, dotted along the bridge, are 30 or so meat workers holding out for something they fear is lost. They stretch across the bridge, nearly all of them Māori. But they are also meat workers, that's what they do. Their years add up like a maths test. How long have you worked at the works for? Um, this would have been my third season. I've been over here for 15 years. 16 years. 27 years. About 23 years, 15 years. How long, how long have you worked there for? 49. 49 years? You're joking. Yeah, no, 49 years, mate. You're straight out of school, were you? Basically, yeah. And after 49 years there, how do you feel about all of this? Oh, uh, sold out. Yeah, it's really... It's, it's not about money like they're saying. It's about principle, man. Despite 75% of Pete's colleagues in Wairoa being union members, in this third lockout, some people began to go back to work. I know everybody has their own family things and I'm not going to dictate to somebody how they should be feeling about people. It was the morale that broke them. It was the morale or lack of morale is what forced them to go back. Hirania. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. <laughs> how long have you been there for? Um, for about three years. Anyone else in your family work at the works? Um, yeah, my sister. Has she gone back? No. So she's out too? Yeah. Has it divided the town? <laughs> um, yeah, towns, families, relationships. It's divided my relationship. How come? Because my partner, he's gone back to work. And he's, he was wanting me to sign back to work, but I didn't agree to it. And so what impact has that had on your relationship? Well, right now, um, we're having a break. We're no longer living together. Because of this? Yeah. Wow. Because of this. Um, my thing was, hey, um, I like these people before, you know, um, before this happened, and, and I'm not going to let this company dictate to me who I'm going to have as friends. Uh, when you, we talked about AFCO, we talked about this era of beautiful love, whanau, that was awesome. And then we got tellies who actually came in and plundered it and said, no, nah, we want this. And then they actually started all the, um, all the hurt, all the personal hurt that happened within family structure, like I just told you. The family structure was, was undermined. It split the uh, town up, it split families up, it split um, friendship up. Has it really split families up? Yes, it has. It has. I've got a daughter-in-law in there. I don't talk to her anymore. been really hard. Um, we ran out of money for our um, food parcels, so we haven't had any food parcels since the week before Christmas. Um, depression has crept in amongst some of our members. We've got, it seems to us we have got a town that doesn't give a shit about us. Um, oh, it's been bloody hard.
and then we start this other campaign on making the company look foolish. We're not going to sit on our hands and just watch everything unfold. Every time there's a court case, we're going to be there to show that, hey, hey, we're, this is not a faceless thing. When we did show up in court, the judge could, because it was like, holy shit, these fellas travelled for moral, and they were there. And then not only were we there, we had a group of us that were there, and even the lawyers and all that could spot us. And they were like, holy, are you the warrior fellas? Yeah, we're the warrior fellas. And we go up town, we went for a walk up town, and people recognised us. They're like, hey, warrior, and like, yeah, warrior. And then um, we take that information, we take all that good stuff from there, and then I'd bring it up at the meeting. Because, you know, we, we were on the, they were on the bridge getting yelled at, being abused, thinking that they've, they've, um, nobody cares. And I tell them, bro, I was in Auckland and everybody knows us. We had um, these Indian fellas, hard union, bringing food to where we were. We had people yelling out, go war, go war. No, we don't get that in war. These people know who we are. The lawyers knew who we were. And don't forget that these people know you, so you're not just a voice sitting at home, being depressed, and you see the morale pick up. Boys are ready for another fight. When, when I first started, the, the port workers were like, hey, you realise this guy doesn't even eat meat, right? About you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, uh, and then the, and the guys were like, well, well, what do you eat there? And I said, oh, I don't know. And, and one of the members says, he probably eats tofu. And the others were like, what's that? Is that a Japanese band? <laughs> it was really funny. And, and another one said, oh, he probably wants us just to go on strike forever. And then shortly afterwards, this, this big Māori guy, who, who's, he was at the front of the chain. You've got to understand that me was quite hierarchical. It takes very long to get to the front of the chain. He came up to me and said, oh, it's all good, bro. I've been vegan for about 12 years. You know, the way that we treat animals is the way this company treats us. You know, <laughs> it, was, it was pretty amazing. Yeah, it was, it was pretty awesome. But, but and I said to him, well, why do you still work here? He says, what are you talking about? It's the only job here. My family's been here three generations. I've got to, got to pay the bills. But that doesn't mean I've got to accept the abuse that animals have to face or my colleagues. It was pretty, it was pretty amazing. To a magnificently white-haired... <laughs> Hello! <laughs> I think that gets me on camera all the time and the sign. <laughs> What's your sign say? Toot for collective agreement. You know. So you're the end of the chain? Yeah. What's your name? Liz McGregor. Nice to meet you, Liz. Yeah, nice to meet you, finally. <laughs> <laughs> and so how long have you been at the end of the chain for, Liz? Um, I started in the beef. I was six years in the beef until they revamped it, and then I went to lamb cuts. Yeah. So all up, how long have you been here for? Fifteen years. So I was trying to shift people's mindset of, why are you being depressed about work? Because that was there. You could be depressed about not being at work, but they're starting to enjoy their freedoms of going hunting, going for fish, going for spending some time with their family. But we're in Whitehall, and we got hunting that way, we got fishing that way, and we got diving that way. And they started pushing that to the front, to the point where they could have stayed out longer. You know what I mean? We'd gotten closer. Really? Yep. What's your name? I'm Tina Edwards. What are you doing, Tina? I'm protesting because those clowns over there won't let us go in. On a, on a collective? On a collective. They want us to sign an IEA. And what's wrong with signing an IEA? Have you read the IEA? In early 2016, the dispute eventually reaches the Supreme Court. Pete and some of his colleagues had to go to Wellington to testify in person. I will stick to the co-pop. I will stick to what I'm there for. I'm one of those. I, I don't know what to say. 
if I'm going to go to some place, I'm going to go there and I'm going to be the staunchest of this person and I'm going to stick to the reason I went there for. I was um, at the court case, I was talking to, um, well, I won't name him, but he was kept on saying, you know, I'm going to, you should just come back to me and work. Just work for me, man. I'll give you a job. I'll give you a job. You personally? Yeah. And I was like, eh, no. No. I'll have to decline, no. Because the lawyer is just a lawyer. He's not a meat worker. He doesn't understand how our meat industry works. I know how our meat industry works. Everybody who, was, who went up there was really nervous. I'm not, you know, um, I went up there and told the absolute truth. And I told my friends, tell the truth. Whatever you do, you just be honest. And, you know, because we know the industry. We've lived the industry. He's just a lawyer. He doesn't know how this industry works. I knew I won it as soon as I got off the stand. The dispute finally goes to the Supreme Court, which, you know, declared that the company, that the lockout was illegal and that workers would be receiving back pay. Hello, how are you? Tina, yes, how are you? Happy now, happier now. So today's news is a big lift of a lot of people's shoulders if the company carries through on what they're supposed to. Who's sitting beside you? So going, we, I can see half of a man sitting beside you. That's Pete. Oh yeah, we, we. How are you going? Oh, I'm awesome. I'm awesome, John. And, um, now this, there's a division within the town, but. These, these ones here made a stand, not just for this town, but, but for all in New Zealand, all unions. You know, um, if we didn't make this stand, the teachers would be shafted, the nurses and so on and so on. Everybody would be waiting for this law to be used. And we um, we stood up and, and took it. And, and you've got to give credit to everybody. And, and we won it again. And we stood up with, you know, with um, passion in our heart that we were right. And we did it. It's... Um, we, we didn't want this to, to be a bad thing and a reflection of how this town is. But we are oh, I'm just so proud of this team. This team did everything. This team stood up for itself. It, it said no to a company that hated its own workers. Can you, I just see Daphne was standing beside behind you. There's Daphne. Can you, Daphne, can you come in close to the microphone? Daphne, how are you, Daphne? How are you feeling? Fabulous, absolutely fabulous with the decision. It's just, oh, it's like a big weight's being lifted, John. Why did you stay out for all these months? Why was it so important, this point of principle? Because I believed in my heart we were right. You know, I believed that, oh man, I can't even describe it, John. Um, you know, if we didn't stand up for ourselves, we made the stand, we had to make the stand, and um, I'm just so proud of everyone, you know? It's been a long, tough road on everyone, but we got there, we'll continue to keep going forward, and just hope that, you know, we can get on with this company and just start rebuilding our friendships and rifts with our family and friends. Well, it was quite amazing, really, because it's um, 
the story is really of defeat since the 90s and there was something quite amazing about seeing that culture um, of camaraderie and union culture being kind of alive and well in those sheds. Wairua was always interesting because it was um, both the hardest hit by the dispute but it was also the site of the, the most effective and staunch resistance to the company's anti-union efforts. I went to all the sites and Wairua was easily the one that was most organised and most connected. And I think part of it is that Wairua is a small, well-connected town, but also I think that that was the site where the Māori connection between members was also strongest. Like, the, like it was almost like a hub of its own. It was, you know, they, they're all like that, but like Wairua was this, you know, the families have been really embedded in that community for a really long time. Like I, I, when I talk to other people, I say that was the, the magic of Wairua was, I think, was... Um, the Wairua of the members, like it was amazing. No, like, because many years afterwards, I, I kept on traveling through Wairua on purpose. And like of all the towns that I went to for all my campaigns, I'd always get the biggest turnout in Wairua, which is like one of the smallest towns in New Zealand. More people would turn out to an event that I organized randomly just to catch up with them than Wellington. It's just amazing. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's just awesome. But there's, it's like a, it's like the generations of unionists that I still keep in touch with Wairua because they are special. And that specialness happened because they had a dispute together that they felt that they won, which I think is really important. And we need more of that because that's how we will rebuild the uh, a fighting transformational union movement. Mm. Not having disputes that happen by chance, but they happen because you've planned them. And the best way to plan them is to learn from experience in our own country, not some mythical dispute from America 40 years ago you know this was what eight, eight nine years ago so I mean this is real life history in New Zealand mm. yeah. the negotiations and the the appeals by the company about the, the the figure of that back pay would go on for years as well so it's not like those workers suddenly received back pay as soon as that decision was made it took years and you'll have to ask Pete how that worked out well the money wasn't the issue when we first started we, we, did, we weren't in it for the money. We were in it because what we had prior to them locking us out wasn't bad. The money wasn't bad. We, we were also fighting that amendment act that had been put in there to walk away from bargaining. So we saw three fronts that didn't work out well for us and any other worker. People talk about like unions not being relevant anymore, but they are actually relevant. But to make them relevant, you've actually got to tell stories that connect people with the values of unions. And this is actually, you know, the story, you know, I wasn't lying before when we, you know, I said that the we purposely had the story of David versus Goliath because that's the sort of archetypal story that anyone can relate to. What we need to do is tell stories about hardworking New Zealanders fighting for justice uh, um, in the workplace in a way that everyday New Zealanders who don't necessarily see themselves as unionists can see themselves in the story and actually see that actually we share the same values as them. As Peter said right at the start of the series, he stopped working in the meatworks last year. Last year I got sick. I got real sick. I nearly died last year. I had lepto. Oh, I was just real, was really sick. Kidneys and liver failure was happening. So, um, like, yeah, my skin went yellow, eyes went red and yellow. They were going, oh man, you're going to die. Did you pick that up at work or? Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, I get over there. <laughs> <laughs> So I, um, but I got myself well, you know, I forced myself in like, um, to, to, to back into my mortality, I suppose. 
The other um, amazing experience, which I'd also rate in my top two union experiences alongside that march, was at the end of the dispute. We were having a debrief, and I'll be totally honest, you know, the Meatworks is quite a macho male space, but actually, you know, um, Wahine have always played an important role in the works. But, you know, historically, there was actually a time when the union actually tried to stop women from joining, and then they were able to join, and people stopped them from becoming butchers and all sorts of crazy shit. And we, we were doing a, a, like, not a debrief, it was more like beers around the fire. And this old guy got up, and I was like, oh, fuck, here we go. And he goes, look, I just want to apologise to all the, all of our wahine because um, you held this dispute together and we haven't really pulled pulled our weight. So I'd just like to thank you. And he sat down and the next joker just got up and said the same thing. And me and uh, my colleague who were working together just looked at each other and it was, it was, it was beautiful. And yeah, it was really amazing. Because when you have a struggle around a common issue, when you don't necessarily have everything in common, you create ties and bonds that 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 lasts beyond the dispute but also um you you're more likely to challenge things beyond the dispute and the fact that people were challenging the sort of patriarchal nature of the dispute really shows what the power of 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 unionism is when you bring people together the one thing i'd like to talk about would be the strength of everybody who done it because everybody thinks it's peter but it wasn't peter it was everybody who decided to say yeah it was just having to deal with, if you're going to do a strike, if you're going to do that whole lockout thing, make sure you look after people's morale, because you'll make it. You'll make it if everybody's on the same page, you'll make it. It worked for us. And don't just wait for the, the, the stars to fall out of the sky for you, because it doesn't work that way. <clears throat> um, be patient and help your morale. Don't sit on your hands and wait for somebody else to do it. Go do it. As I said in the introduction, a few people I tried to speak to, for one reason or another, couldn't. But one of the people I contacted sent me this message. I will always carry the Wairoa AFCO Union lockout experiences in my heart. The struggles were unimaginable and very humbling, but if I could, I wouldn't hesitate to do it again. We got a thing on our thing and it's called Union Heart. And that's how we see ourselves, a Union Heart. Thanks for Peter for sharing the story of his colleagues and to Ross and Simon. Next time, we take a look back at the 2018 round of negotiations between the Nurses Union and the DHBs, as nurses, healthcare assistants and midwives had to fight the DHBs, the government and their own union. Kia kaha.